The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is truly an honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Peter Infante. He is currently the managing member of Peter F. Infante Consulting, an organization dedicated to research and analysis of occupational and environmental health issues. Between 2002 and 2011, Dr. Infante was adjunct professor and professorial lecturer of environmental and occupational health at the George Washington University School of Public Health in Washington, D.C. He was previously director of the Office of Carcinogen Identification and Classification at OSHA, which stands for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. During his 24 years in OSHA, he played a major role in determining cancer and other risks to workers during the development of standards for a number of toxic substances, including asbestos, arsenic, benzene, cadmium, ethylene oxide, formaldehyde, lead, and MDA. Prior to working at OSHA, he was employed by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, where he conducted epidemiological studies related to a number of carcinogens found in the workplace. I was interested in speaking with Dr. Infante because he has incredible credentials. He received his Doctor of Dental Surgery degree from Ohio State University and his Doctorate in Public Health from the University of Michigan School of Public Health, Department of Epidemiology. But interestingly, he was supposed to be on a panel for the Environmental Protection Agency looking at the health risks associated with glyphosate until... The Crop Life America Association, which is a trade association for the pesticide industry, asked the EPA to remove Dr. Infante from the scientific advisory panel. I needed to speak with Dr. Infante, therefore, to set the record straight. Dr. Infante, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I was curious about some of your credentials, and when we had a conversation previous to this interview, I asked, What was it that led you to go from a doctor in dental surgery to a degree in public health? Well, after my graduation from dental school, I did a two-year residency at a pediatric hospital in Columbus, Ohio. It's associated with Ohio State University. And as part of that program, every morning for two years, I provided dental care to children that had various types of disabilities, children with hemophilia and other blood disorders, children with epilepsy, cerebral palsy, children with, at the time they had hydrocephalus, like water on the brain, children that were mentally retarded for various reasons. For example, I think the one situation that really caught my mind, I think, and influenced a change in my career was one day when I was in the dental clinic, I had a patient wheeled into my office. She was a six, seven-year-old girl who was a twin. And she was in a wheelchair and she was strapped in with a sheet 
the only reflex she had was like a sucking reflex so that you could see like the bone, the bare bone on the where the pad of her thumb should have been, and that was from sucking it all the time. And I looked at her, I looked at her twin sister, who was this beautiful girl of the same age, and when I saw the potential that the one girl had that she didn't have because of a profound mental retardation, and how did this mental retardation occur? When she was a very young child, she had gone around and she had eaten paint that had peeled off of the house. And because of the lead in the paint, she was profoundly mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was kind of like the final straw. And then I began to think, you know, we need to prevent some of these diseases. It's not really good enough to treat children that already have them. I mean, the treatments is important. I thought it was really, it would really be important to prevent some of these diseases from occurring and eliminate some of this, you know, disease and terrible conditions that these children's had. Mm-hmm. So you went. So back. because of that, then I applied and I went to the University of Michigan School of Public Health, then received a degree from the Department of Epidemiology, a Doctor of Public Health. And what is epidemiology? It's the it's the study of disease epidemics. It's the study of diseases or things that cause diseases in the human population with the end point of trying to establish associations. And then from there, we try to determine causality, what causes what disease. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we hear this argument where if we find something that has a correlation and we are suspicious of, say, a certain chemical we're often told, well, that's correlation. You can't prove causation from that. How do you talk about the role of the epidemiologist in terms of linking certain environmental hazards to the disease specifically? Well, I mean, the links come. The, let's first talk about association. Right. You do a study of, you know, whatever chemical or agent you're interested in, and you determine whether or not there is a significant association between, let's say, a particular cancer, if you're, if you're looking at cancer as an endpoint, and that exposure. And how do you determine that association or the significance of that association? Well, you determine it usually by estimating what's called the relative risk in a study. Let's say, for example, if you're looking at a population of workers exposed to asbestos, and the rate of lung cancer, let's say, is six times higher than what you would expect in the comparison population, mm-hmm. you would say, well, that's a six-fold risk. And then, okay, that's a various, incredibly high risk. Is that result statistically significant? And if you say, yes, that it is, you would say that study shows a significant association between asbestos exposure and the development of lung cancer or death from lung cancer. So you say, well, does that mean that the asbestos caused the lung cancer? I would say, well, not on any single study, but the higher the relative risk that you have, the more, the stronger the evidence is. Mm -hmm. So there's more than one, usually if something's of concern, you know, then there become results from more than one study available. Mm -hmm. So you look at all of the information and you say, okay, look, here's a study that shows an effect. Here's a study that doesn't show a significant increase. And you look at the 
the totality of the information that's available, and you determine ca- causation is an interpretation of the association. So I first see. You, you have the association, and then you say, well, is it causally related? There are quite a number of agents and substances now that we know cause cancer. And how is that causation determined? For the most part, it was determined from association and the interpretation of the association, even though prior to the conduct of epidemiological studies, there were some chemicals that were thought to cause cancer before we had epidemiological studies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. you. That's a minority today, but in the past it was a majority. Thank you for that explanation because I struggle sometimes in making that leap, and you help cement how that happens. Well, there's a confounder, of course, and that is the issue of latency. So, for example, a person is exposed to a certain compound, and then how long do we have to wait to see an adverse effect? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, if it depends on the endpoint that you're studying. If you're studying, let's say, cancer, it's a chronic disease, and you have to allow a sufficient time period between the initial exposure and that cancer to become manifest. It's different than infectious diseases like influenza, the common cold, right? You're around somebody that has that and maybe in two weeks you've got a cold or you've got mumps or chicken pox like in the past. That's infectious diseases. With chronic diseases, it's a disease that's irreversible and it's progressive, and it takes time for gene mutations to occur and then those mutated cells to proliferate into what would be considered a cancer when then those cells are out of control. So, and also it depends on, you know, the type of cancer that you're evaluating. If you have a cancer like leukemia, you might have anywhere from one or two years latency to more than 40 or 50 years latency. If you have a cancer like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or multiple myeloma, which is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think to evaluate the data properly, you would want to see you know, a minimum of 20 to 30 years of latency. Wow. Very interesting. If not longer. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, let's say if you wanted to study something that you thought might be causing prostate cancer. Well, I mean, this is another point, is that, you know, you wouldn't study it in 20 to 30-year-olds. You would have to study it in in men, say, beginning at the age maybe of 60 to 80. Why? Because that's when they get it. So from whatever is going to cause it, you're going to, you had better study a population in that age group or, you're not going to identify it. You know, like, who would do a study of prostate cancer in 20-year-olds? Right. I don't care how many you had. You're, you know, it's unlikely you're going to see any significant increase if, in fact, there is one that's related to the exposure that you're evaluating. Right. You know, I think that most of us, you know, we're, we're tax-paying citizens, and we think that there are governmental agencies looking out for our best interests. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that say, well, if the product is for sale at the hardware store, it's got to be safe. And that somehow if there's an EPA registration or approval, that somehow this particular compound is safe to use. 
you've worked in governmental <laughs> agencies. Can we have faith that we are being protected? Well, your initial comment there kind of made me laugh, even though it's not a humorous situation. There is really not much government regulation that takes place in in relation to the number of hazards that have been identified over the past 40 years. I mean, this whole thing about government over-regulation in terms of health hazards to workers or to the general population, it simply does not happen. Now, I worked at OSHA for 24 years in the specific directorate that sets exposure limits for toxic uh, chemicals and agents in the workplace. Now, OSHA was established with a congressional act, and this was a great act, passed in 1970. And the same with EPA, our current EPA, was established in 1970. And why was that? I think it was because of all the social activism that preceded that in the 1960s that led to this legislation, which was related to environmental exposures and related to controlling occupational exposures so that you don't have unnecessary disease and death in the workplace or in the general environment. But the problem is is that there is so much pressure on government regulatory agencies to do nothing, it's very difficult to get any substance regulated, you know, whether let's talk about carcinogens. It's very difficult. For example, since 1970, OSHA, in terms of carcinogenic substances, I think has regulated certainly less than 30 since 1970. That's almost 50 years. And that's not even one a year. And one of those regulations included 13 carcinogens at one time. So, you know, there's not much that gets done because there's tremendous pressure. There are economic interests that don't want substances that are harmful to workers or to the general public regulated. And, in fact, it's cheaper to litigate than for them to clean up. So, from a business standpoint, why not litigate? Even if you just take, like, the benzene standard at OSHA. It was an emergency standard that was published in the Federal Register in 1977. We issued the standard, and we were sued by the American Petroleum Institute down in the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans, which is the heart of the petrochemical industry. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals stayed the OSHA standard. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was stayed in the Supreme Court indicated that the Secretary of Labor would have to do additional analyses. So we finally issued a new benzene standard in 1987. That's 10 years after. The the situation was so grave that the Assistant Secretary for OSHA issued an emergency standard, and that standard was not completed until 10 years later. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Peter Infante. He has 47 years of experience as an epidemiologist, and we are speaking about his work in our U.S. government protecting the public against hazardous substances. Dr. Infante, I wanted to specifically make sure that we spoke about an incident that happened that disturbed me as a consumer, and that had to do with an invitation that you had 
to serve on a scientific advisory panel for the EPA, looking specifically at glyphosate, which is the most commonly used herbicide in the United States. And I was concerned because it seemed fitting that you serve on that panel, and yet a letter from an association that represents the pesticide and herbicide industries to the EPA seemed to be enough to have you removed. Can you talk about how you became invited and then disinvited? Well, I'll talk a little bit about that. I prefer talking about the science. Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, is the most common herbicide used throughout the world. Mm. So it's a concern because the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is the expert committee on cancer for the World Health Organization, last year concluded that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic to humans. It's second highest category. And that was based on sufficient evidence in experimental animals and limited epidemiological evidence, which means some epidemiological evidence. And that epidemiological evidence was related to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, I was selected to be on a science advisory panel that was reviewing the Environmental Protection Agency's evaluation of glyphosate. And CropLife, which is the trade association for the agricultural industry, which includes uh, uh, Monsanto, is probably one of the biggest uh, contributors to it, they wrote a letter to the EPA saying they would like me removed from the science advisory panel because I was biased against pesticides. I mean, some of the claims that they made were absolutely ridiculous. So that letter went to the EPA. They called me about it. We discussed it on the phone. And they said, fine, you know, it wasn't a problem. My response to them was adequate. But nevertheless, I sent a four-page letter to EPA to ask them to place it in the docket, responding to CropLife's letter. And it was no problem as far as EPA was concerned. However, three or four days after they received the letter from CropLife, they canceled the SAP meeting on glyphosate that was to take place in October because the agriculture industry was concerned that I was the only epidemiologist on the panel. And since I was biased against pesticides, that I could unduly influence the panel. So EPA suspends the meeting. Well, after that, you know, I continued working on the advisory panel, was doing, you know, the assignments, doing analyses of data. And then the day before EPA was to announce the new dates for the science advisory panel meeting to evaluate the EPA document, I was informed that I was no longer on the panel, which was, like, shocking to me because for the last month between when it was canceled and and this date, you know, I'd been working daily evaluating the data, had been in communication with the EPA and had been doing what I thought were the appropriate analysis of the epidemiological data. But I think because of the protest from CropLife and Monsanto, they said that I may give the appearance that I was prejudiced against pesticides, so they could not have me serve on the panel, even though we'd gone through this a month prior and everything was fine. They told me I didn't even need to send them a letter responding to it. So what happened next? 
Well, I mean, after I was informed, then, you know, it was really, I thought, what is going on here? Because a year prior to that time, I was on an SAP for the EPA related to another pesticide, uh, ethylene oxide, which is used to sterilize hospital equipment. And there was never any complaint to remove me from that science advisory panel. And when I served on it, there were no complaints about uh, me, about my serving on the committee and even through the committee meetings. So now, you know, all of a sudden I'm, you know, if I was biased against pesticides, why didn't I show it a year before when I was on the other pesticide committee? You know, it didn't make any sense. Exactly. Well, so then I contacted EPA and said, well, since I'm no longer on the science advisory panel, I would like to make a presentation before the science advisory panel. And I realize that the deadline has passed to file you know, a notice that you would like to appear, but I obviously couldn't file a notice to appear before the science advisory panel when I was on it. So the EPA uh, said yes, you know, they allotted me time. And so I presented my epidemiological analysis of cancer in relation to glyphosate exposure. And since I only had initially had 10 minutes allotted to me, I focused on uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because I thought those were the uh, most informative data in terms of the cancer hazard from exposure to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave us in terms of understanding the real risk from this herbicide? Where does that leave us? I mean, the the public, the scientific community? Exactly. Where does that leave... Farmers, where does that leave the farming communities, farmers' families, people like me who advise people on the kinds of foods to eat? We see so much conflicting information. The pesticide industry that stands to profit from these products are quick to tell those of us working on the front lines of consumer education that there's nothing to worry about. These herbicides have been tested extensively. They look to the agriculture health study, for example, that you have noted that there were some faults with regard to appreciating the latency period. How do we make sense of all this data? How does the public know who to believe? Well, first of all, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, they have no axe to grind either way on this. In fact, they're very conservative, in my opinion, when it comes to evaluating cancer risks from various exposures to human populations, and IARC concluded that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic to humans. And so I had heard this when I was assigned to work on the advisory panel. Then there was another group in Europe, the European Food Safety Commissioner Organization, concluded there was no evidence. So, you know, I knew of that, but I didn't really look at the documents because I wanted to do my own analysis. Mm-hmm. And what I found that with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, in my opinion, there's evidence that glyphosate is significantly associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. If you just take the six studies that are in the current EPA review of glyphosate, let's just take the six studies that they rely upon. Five of those six studies, the risk is greater than one. One would mean there's no risk. In three of the six studies, there are statistically significant elevated risks for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And also, then, individuals have done what's called meta-analysis, and there are five 
separate groups of investigators or agencies that have done what's called a meta-analysis, where you combine the results that say of all, say all six of these epidemiological studies. When you do that, every meta-analysis that's been done shows a statistically significant increase in risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma related to glyphosate exposure. And the risks are like all between, they're around around 1.4, so like a 40% increase. You know, some of them show 1.3, so it's a 30% increase that's statistically significant. Mm -hmm. And I think that's number one. I mean, I think that's very important that you have the meta-analysis. Then there's another important aspect in an epidemiological study, and it's called dose-response. In other words, as you increase exposure, do you have an increase in the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? And of the six studies, three evaluated exposure response. In two of those studies, there was a significant increase in the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with an increase in exposure to glyphosate. For example, in one study, those that had more than 10 days of total exposure They've got over a two-fold risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that's highly significant. Mm -hmm. In another study, the agricultural workers that were exposed for more than two days a year had over a two-fold risk, while those exposed to less than two days a year didn't show any risk. So again, it's showing you an increase in exposure is associated with an increase in risk that's statistically significant for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And dose response in an epidemiological study is an incredibly powerful tool because whenever you do dose response analyses, you're going to make errors in your exposure assessment. There are some people that are going to have had high exposure, you're going to categorize them as low. There are some people that are going to have low exposure, you categorize them as high. There's nothing you can do. You're going to make errors in your exposure assessment. And all those errors that you make are going to bias you towards a flat dose response. In other words, you're not going to see a dose response. So the fact that you see a dose response in two of, of three studies, that's very important because well, it, also, it also raises other issues in the quality of the epidemiological studies. Mm -hmm. Then there was one study that evaluated the data by latency, which you asked me about earlier, only one study. And of that study, it shows that those who were the latency period, in other words, the period between initial exposure and diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was more than 10 years, there was over a two-fold risk that was statistically significant. So you say, well, so what's going on here? Why wouldn't a reasonable person think, gee, maybe we better take some uh, precautions here, maybe reduce exposure when you've got such powerful studies demonstrating an increased risk? And, you know, I'm not saying it's proven beyond a doubt. I don't think it has been. But you have a reasonable amount of data here pointing to an elevated risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, goodness. I know. I'm going to have to have you come back and further enlighten us about these chemical toxicities. I want to thank you very much for sharing what you know. I think that you have given us reason for caution, and I hope that our farming communities that are listening 
will recognize that this is a red flag and we don't want our families, our farmers, and our children and our consumers exposed to the chemical. So in closing, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Peter Infante, 47 years experience as an epidemiologist. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Infante, I will want you to come back and talk more about your work in cancer prevention. Thank you so much. I'll be happy to. Thank you for having me.